Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Beloved, our reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, at this point in the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus and his disciples were at the end of a long, full day. They fed 5,000 people, healed some people, got into a heated exchange with the Pharisees about the particulars of the law, and Jesus explains his thoughts on the law with the crowd, and then he leads. He travels to the district of Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory. There he encounters a woman in need of some assistance. Not a Jewish woman, mind you. Not someone he was necessarily sent to save, but someone nonetheless. Let us turn now and hear this word from Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. more. 
swimming against the tide, practicing grace and truth, swimming against the tide, we will follow you. Home, sweet home. Have you ever found yourself uttering that phrase in your life? You walk through the door after a long road trip or vacation, you're exhausted, you're tired, you're stretched thin, weary, but thankful to be home, and you drop your bags as you walk through the door and you say, home sweet home. Or you've been away at college and it's been a a long first semester of homesickness and just pulling into the driveway. You walk in the door and you at least think it, home sweet home. Or it's been a long day of work or a long couple of weeks in the hospital. And you walk in, you drop your bags, you look around, you take a deep breath and you say, yeah, home sweet home. It is um, a phrase that I have been curious about. Where did this phrase originate, home sweet home? It turns out that it comes from a very popular song, a huge hit from many years ago. No, not the one by the 80s hair band Motley Crue, by the way. Um, it actually comes from an opera song uh, that was first performed in London all the way back in 1823. About 50 years later, it came across to the United States and later became this wildly popular ballad in the U.S. during the Civil War era. All these homesick soldiers would sing it karaoke style in bars and saloons. Home, home, sweet, sweet home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And it's true, isn't it? There really is no place like home. And over the last couple of years, the pandemic has taught us that home is not only a place where we feel valued and accepted and belongingness but it's also where we feel safe and secure. Home is another word for refuge from the harsh, unpredictable, precarious realities of our world. In the 1980s, a futurist, Faith Popcorn, detected a deep shift in the way Americans were living their lives. The nightclub, disco-rama, dance party scene of the 1970s was losing steam. And uh, restaurants had, uh, had, had tables that were empty on Saturday nights. Uh, nightclubs were sitting vacant. Instead of going out, Popcorn noticed that people were turning in. They were worn out. They were exhausted. They were overstimulated. And technology made it very easy for people just to start staying home. You might remember in the 80s, early 80s, Cable TV began beaming movies into our homes. Microwaves became ubiquitous. 60% uh, of Americans owned DVRs by the mid-1980s. And Americans were staying home so much that in the year 1990, they made 4.2 million babies. <laughs> it was the highest number of babies born since the baby boom of 1960. 
And of course, with the advent of the internet in the 90s, we could now shop from home, we could work from home, we could bank from home, we could even meet and chat with people all over the world from home. And with fewer reasons to ever leave our homes, we chose to improve them. We built these elaborate home theater systems with big screen TVs. We built man caves, as we call them in our basements, gourmet kitchens, home gardens, home spas. And then when we got finished improving them, we went to protecting them. The advent of home security systems and gated communities and the historic proliferation of gun sales. If you doubt this cultural trend, think about where did Martha Stewart come from all of a sudden? And big box home improvement stores and TV shows like This Old House, they all led to this cultural trend that popcorn called cocooning. It's a word that took such root in our culture, it became quickly a word in our common dictionaries. Cocooning is the impulse to stay home when it feels just too scary to go outside. It's the impulse to pull a shell over around ourselves to protect ourselves from the threat of disease and viruses, crime, terrorism, pollution, and all the other unknown threats of the world. Now, humans, of course, have been cocooning for millennia. In fact, our earliest ancestors lived in caves that were shaped like cocoons, where they were protected from the wild beasts, from elements, from enemies. And today in the modern world, home is sanctuary. If we're fortunate enough to have a home, we know that having a good one is essential to our well-being, to our sense of belongingness and peace of mind. But while the pandemic has taught us that staying home might actually save our lives, there is this other silent epidemic in our culture today. It's called loneliness and isolation. And that epidemic reminds us that leaving our homes is equally as life-saving and life-giving. In our culture today, we know we need to get out more. We've just learned that after two years. We need community, we need churches, we need relationships, we need connections like never before. We know that these are indispensable to our well-being. I mean, even Jesus discovered the value of leaving his so-called cocoon. Uh, Jesus belonged to a cocoon. It was back then called the house of Israel, not a real house but a symbolic house, a, a religious and cultural house, a spiritual home. And this spiritual home is one that Jews would rarely leave for reasons of ritual purity, for reasons of having that sense of the common identity as the chosen people. In first century Palestine, Jews stuck with Jews. They rarely, if ever, associated with people beyond their own tribe. And this was in part because it was fundamental to their survival. But one day, Jesus left the cocoon of the house of Israel. And he discovered along the way that it wasn't so dangerous after all. 
We have this story before us that I think is one of the most pivotal life-changing moments in his earthly ministry. The day that Jesus leaves the protective shell of his cocoon and he crosses a border that good Jews of his day were never to cross. Think about it in your own life. Have you ever come up against one of those borders in your life where you have a sense that you you might grow, you might learn something if only you stepped across that line. Maybe it worked out this way. You, you, you thought of one issue only one particular way your whole life. You had a belief about a particular group of people or a, 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 a sexual orientation or a way of life, a lifestyle. and You find yourself leaning up against that barbed wire fence in your mind. It's the barbed wire fence that has kept you all these years from really seeing a part of the world that's essential to your, to your growth and well-being. And finally, for once in your life, you're up against that, that barbed wire. And you see that what's on the other side is something that is equally as pure and loving and life-giving. Every one of us as humans have these mental signs in our, in our minds that uh, no trespassing, do not enter, uh, danger. But sometimes we, we realize that what's beyond the border is not so dangerous after all. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has one of these moments. Jesus is on a road trip and he, he crosses into Gentile territory. He's met by this woman who begs Jesus to heal her sick daughter, Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter is full of demons. And we don't know what demons necessarily represents. Maybe it's a mental condition, a physical condition. We don't know for sure. Maybe it's a spiritual one. All we know is that in this encounter, these two individuals couldn't be more different from each other. She's a woman. He's a man. She's a Gentile. He's a Jew. She worships idols he worships Yahweh. They are separated by language, worldview, geography, race, religion. They are from different tribes. And so in response to her request, he tells her this. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, you're not my people. I can't help you. Isn't this the last thing that you would ever expect to hear from Jesus, by the way? You're not my responsibility. I'm sorry. Some scholars suggest that Jesus in this story is just testing her faith. But I can't think of any other story in the Gospels anywhere where Jesus tests desperate people in their worst moment. Jesus doesn't play games with people in need. He doesn't test anyone to see how far they'll go before he answers their prayers. This desperate woman is not a believing Jew to begin with. There is no faith to test. This is a story about Jesus testing a desperate woman's faith. So the question then is why? Why is Jesus so reluctant to help this poor woman? Maybe his reluctance is intended simply to slow the whole scene down just a little bit. 
so that we can see clearly and unmistakably what it looks like when someone comes up against one of those borders in the world and dares to cross it, dares to cross those archaic divisions because he has one thing to prove, that there is no one, not one single person who is beyond the reach and circle of God's compassion. Not even those that don't believe in God at all. Not even people like this Canaanite woman who worships a different God. No one stands outside the circle of God's care. If this story were captured in a movie, this is the scene where Jesus would stop and he would, he would turn and look squarely into the camera and he would say, you watching this? And that's when Jesus then utters some of the most unchristian words that we've ever heard come out of his mouth. It's not proper to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. It's, a, it's an insult that's lost on most of us in today's world because these days we are obsessed with our dogs. Inf- infatuated, really. We dress them up in ribbons and bows and designer sweaters. We, we tool them around in their little strollers at Home Depot. <laughs> they have their own doggy psychiatrists and day spas. Uh, but Jesus isn't talking here about our furry little friends. Jesus is talking about the feral scavengers of his day that lived in the streets, that that dug through garbage looking for something to eat. It's not proper to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. In other words, you are a dog. You're not even human. It's an astonishing statement. But before you get angry with Jesus... Before you assume that maybe Jesus broke his halo that day in the land of Canaan, let me tell you what I think. I think Jesus is just playing the part. I think Jesus is just playing us. I think Jesus is just mirroring our own human impulse to otherize and exclude and to not see people as children of God worthy of mercy. Jesus isn't saying that it's right to believe and say these things. He's simply showing us what we look like when we believe and act this way and then cloak it all in religious garb. In this shocking scene, Jesus wants us to see all those borders in our world that we every day refuse to cross. And some of those are visible and some we work overtime to keep invisible because it hurts to acknowledge them. The borders of race, of class, religion, politics, sexual orientation, gender identity, culture. There are borders today between Sunnis and Shiites, Irish Catholics and Protestants, Palestinians and Israelis, conservatives and progressives, blue collar and white collar, straight and queer, rich and poor, Christian and Muslim, we can just create our own lists. And it's rare for us to cross those boundaries, and we often say this is just the way it is. 
But this Canaanite woman refuses to believe that. And she persists long enough for Jesus, really for us, to see what lies on the other side of that barbed wire fence in our minds and to see her as she really is, not as some scavenging dog, but as a a daughter of God. This woman won't give in. It's like that game that some kids play when they stare into each other's eyes, waiting for the other to blink first. And what does she say to Jesus and his dog statement? She says, you're right. But even the dogs under the, under the table eat the, the children's crumbs. I think it's the best comeback line in the Gospels. There's an old Yiddish proverb that says, if someone calls you an ass, put a saddle on your back. And this brave woman wears the saddle just long enough to expose the flawed logic of the house of Israel. And it's Jesus who blinks. What we have is a a teachable moment that Jesus gives us. Jesus is hoping that we will come to our senses, that something in us will change. And Jesus has made himself in this story the fall guy for our sakes. And in doing so, he has honored this Canaanite woman as the hero of the story. Is there any better Mother's Day story than this? To acknowledge that when we give and honor women and their agency and their power in this world, our world's a better place. Because did you notice when Jesus finally acknowledges this woman's humanity, her kid gets well? And isn't that how it always works? When we see each other and when we give credit to the work and the privileges and the responsibilities and the faithfulness of women in particular, the whole world gets better. And all the world's children get healed. The writer of Ephesians puts it this way, remember that you were once aliens and strangers having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. For he is our peace and he has broken down the dividing wall that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. Jesus is the border-crossing, boundary-breaking embodiment of divine love. Maybe you knew this about lobsters. Uh, Did you know that lobsters never, they never stop growing? The largest I know, I just went from that to lobsters, but stick with me. (laughs) The largest lobster on record was about 50 years old, and it weighed 45 pounds. And what many don't understand about lobsters is how risky it is to mature as a lobster. Every few months, a lobster has to shed its exoskeleton, and releasing its shell is a tiring process because it leaves the flesh of the living lobster exposed and vulnerable. In order to grow, the lobster must regularly let go of its spiny, tough exterior, the one that makes him look so intimidating. And failure to rid itself of its outer shell would mean certain death by the very structure that it lives in. So when a lobster's inner being has 
outgrown its shell, the shedding process ensues. And the lobster swallows large amounts of water and it causes itself to swell. And eventually the internal process and the pressure begins to push and separate the part of the shell that protects its head and body. It's called the carapace. And then next, the lobster pops its eyeballs out of its sockets, rendering itself completely blind. And that's when the process of wrenching its flesh through its pincer claws and all the joints begins. And after the claw flesh is free, the lobster finally liberates itself with a flip of the tail. But once free, the lobster flops around exhausted and helpless and vulnerable to prey as it waits for its new shell to create to form. If you've ever seen the cooked meat of a lobster, you've likely seen that pinkish color on the outer edge. The pink is its, well, it was its emerging shell. The lobster's new outer structure is birthed out of what's there before. The lobster metaphor is is a metaphor for what's called adaptive presence. The lobster knows what we all know, that if we don't leave behind our protective shells, our cocoons, we'll die. The lobster knows that we live and we grow by daring to break free from all that confines us. This past week, the breakup of the United Methodist Church began. The Global Methodist Church, as it's called, was launched this last Monday in response to the majority of Methodists who for decades have been trying to break free from the oppressive shell of policies that have done great harm to the LGBTQ community. The traditionalists, as they call themselves, have have been advocating for those policies for years and now have left to form the new global Methodist church. But the irony is they they take a heavy shell with them. And for us here at St. Andrew, that shell is, is just too small and confining. And it will be up to us and to other United Methodists to, to grow into something new and bigger and more fully inclusive and far more courageous so that we finally erase some of those borders that have for too long kept us from loving each other. And it will not be easy because every shell forms a new one and we will have our own shells to break free from. But I do remember 30 years ago next month, there was a moment in my life when a bishop put his hand on my head and ordained me, ordained me as a United Methodist pastor. And the awkwardness of that moment was in knowing that he and I didn't see eye to eye on the issue of inclusion. As bishop, he had enforced many of these very regressive policies that ended up hurting and harming my colleagues. But after his retirement, he had this remarkable change of heart in which he came to see that the debate on sexual orientation could be perceived in a new way. His eyes were opened and his heart expanded. And he confessed openly 
that for all these years he had been wrong. And in a much publicized sermon, he said, for most of my life, I I went along with the prevailing view on this issue. It, It seemed like common sense to me. But it was my personal experience, he said, that showed me that I was wrong. He went on, there is truth and value at the center of religious faith that is unchanging, that ought to be honored, but we must not forget that God is ever ready to do a new thing, that the God we worship is not a static God capable only of speaking from two or three or four hundred years ago. Rather, he said, God is living, alive in this moment, revealing new truth to us here and now. Takeaways for today, Jesus is the border-crossing, boundary-breaking embodiment of God's love. And every cocoon eventually becomes too small and confining. God is alive in this moment, revealing new truth to us here and now. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.